This is Tom Kuzmanis, former Canadian men's national team player, uh, nine-time Canadian champion. You're listening to the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. We are more than a podcast, and you are listening to the ProSource Podcast. Is here with myself, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Justin Williams, and we also have a Dutch influence like Barcelona. It's Mr. Corbe Durand. Kobe, how are you doing? I'm all right, buddy. I'm all right. How are you guys doing? Great. It's a pleasure to have you join us and join this football chat with Harry over in Newcastle. Yeah, following the magpies, I take it. Uh, yes, yep, definitely, and uh, it's it's been a very, as I say, been a very interesting uh, few months, and it's going to be very, very interesting to see how it goes from here. Yeah, I know they've been aggressive and trying to get transfers over, but before we even get into that, maybe you guys have already talked about that a little bit, I wanted to know who you thought the most influential Magpie has been in its history. Oh, for, uh, for me, I mean, I think influential, I think you've got to say Kevin Keegan. I don't think he's gets the credit he deserves outside of Newcastle that you know he was the the manager in the 1990s which will you know everyone remembers that that team from the 90s when they nearly won the, the Premier League title but it wasn't it's more than that he he walked into the club in 1992 the club was in the second division which is now the, the championship obviously uh floundering at the bottom nearly you know a, a few games from being relegated they have to win a, a certain game sorry 1992 to survive and then and then they 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 get promoted the next season, and then and then the rest is history. So, and that's really the but the birth of the modern Newcastle United. The reason why the club has been bought, the reason why there is that massive stadium, and and the city is so so behind the club is because of Kevin Keegan. So, you know, I know Alan Shearer. Everybody loves Alan Shearer. I love Alan myself. Um, yeah. And and Sir Bobby Robson, obviously. But I think without Kevin Keegan, obviously he signed Shearer, and you know he put the club in the position. Where they were able to attract Sir Bobby Robson. So without without Kevin Keegan, then nothing in the modern era of Newcastle United happened. So he he doesn't get enough credit, I don't believe, outside of Newcastle. He 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 is the the person that I think deserves the most of it. No, it makes total sense. You see him as a catalyst, and yeah, very much so. If you look who followed yeah. him, then that makes complete sense. And then as of the squad today, who, who impresses you most? Uh, Bruno Guimaraes, um, one of the new signings in in January, is 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 without doubt for me that the most important member of the squad at the moment because he signals, you know, in, in January it was all about you know you you'll be aware Newcastle hadn't won a game in 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 the first fourteen, which which no club in the history of the Premier League has ever survived from that position. You know, admittedly, no club has ever had the who's ever been in that position has ever had the ability to spend ninety million pounds in January, so. Mm-hmm. There is a cat. There is that sort of thing to sort of say, as as the sort of you know uh, way of of quantifying that. But I think the focus in January was all about survival. You've bought players from like Chris Wood from Burnley and Dan Byrne, uh, who's a local. You know, he's from Newcastle, where he was playing for Brighton at the time. Proven in the Premier League, Matt Target as well. It was all about the sort of thing of 
you know, getting proven players in to improve the squad gently and, and, and go on from there. And Nick Pope this summer from Burnley is another example of that same sort of thing. But Bruno was, was different because he was a Brazilian international who was wanted by Arsenal and linked with Manchester United, linked with Juventus. He really signals what, what the club is aiming to do. He's spoken in terms of winning the Champions League and believing in a, in a project which he'll, he'll obviously have been sold. Now, obviously, Newcastle aren't in a position to even dream of winning the Champions League. They're not even in a position of, of, to even dream about qualifying for the Champions League at the moment. But that shows the, the, the sort of trajectory that, that Newcastle are going to be on. And it shows the fact that the, that the club is thinking about that, the fact that he's spoken about being told about the Champions League and trying to win it in, in sort of four or five years' time. So while we're Newcastle are in this position of thinking about solidifying themselves this year in the top half maybe and maybe pushing for Europe if they're lucky and you know getting more players who, who were proven in the league and know the league and know the system that the manager anyhow wants to play. Bruno Gumarish is, is, is a different level to all of that. I think he is a player that kind of proves now that they can attract some some very good players even in their current state. Newcastle have won one game in the Premier League and, and yet they are attracting a, a, a Brazilian international who was wanted by most clubs in Europe, and for me, he could walk into to most clubs. You know, he could play for most teams in Europe. Real Madrid were linked with him just weeks after he started Newcastle because his impact was huge. Um, so for me, I think he he's a really really good player. I think you've got others like Kieran Trippier, who's an England international, kind of similar sort of thing of coming in and setting standards, new standards. Now we you know we we were this club that, that just tried to exist as you as you you know you alluded to with the Maple Leafs there. It's the same sort of thing. Nobody really, you know, went to games to expect. You know, it was it was almost habitual. You know, for context, my my father, my own father had we had season tickets, and he gave his up because it was just it was just going for the sake of going. There was no there was no plan to win a you know to win anything. If you won a game, you would you would know that you'd come back and probably lose the next one. Whereas bringing players like Kieran Trippier and bringing players like Bruno Guimaraes in, it really sort of suggests that. There's a long-term plan here, and that 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 is why it's so exciting. Not necessarily because you know Newcastle are, are, are trying to sign you know Paul Pogba or Neymar or or you know Kylian Mbappe, which is what a lot of people immediately assume that they would, because that's what Chelsea did when when mm-hmm. they bought Ernan Crespo and they bought Didier Drogba and what Manchester Manchester City did when they bought Robinho. There was none of that with Newcastle because I think the situation is completely different, and and that's reflected. But but. To balance that out, they've gone and still got a player who plays for Brazil and, and could probably play for most teams in England in Bruno. So there's a lot to be excited about. I think he he kind of epitomizes that. Now, before I pass you back to Justin and me, you, you had mentioned a few names in there, all local boys, uh, Trippier, Byrne, Target. These are all defenders. Yeah. Is defense a an important sort of aspect to what they're doing now, or is that is that just personal to you? Well, I think I think... The fundamental issue was with Newcastle was that they, in the, under the previous ownership, in, under Mike Ashley and under their ownership, under the management of Steve Bruce, who wasn't popular at all with the fans, he he was he ironically from Newcastle himself, but didn't really buy into the whole. It was sort of this idea that I think people have this idea that if you go in and you you know the area and you know the club, that you automatically it'll work out. And Bruce was proof of of, of not of that not happening, and part of the reason was. Tactically, he just wasn't there. Just wasn't enough in the team, and and that was sort of you know to to, to win games in, in terms of fitness and in terms of tactical approach. And that was 
reflected in the defence. The defence was slow, it was ageing, it hadn't there hadn't been a defensive signing before Trippier in January since twenty eighteen. So the same defence that had basically got Newcastle promoted from the championship under Rafael Benitez the year before, with a couple of um a couple of minor you know, other signings mm-hmm. but wasn't touched for four years, so it was aging and it just wasn't good enough and that was eventually reflected in that you know, everything came to a head in that first half of the season. So the first thing to really fix was the defence. And that's why Trippier came in, that's why Dan Byrne came in, Sven Botman's come in this summer, Nick Pope and um and Matt Target. They're all defensive players. Now we're at Newcastle in a position where they can look at you know, looking forward in, in, in out, you know, in the wingers, they're looking for wingers, they're looking for, you know, a midfielder and, and particularly another striker because Callum Wilson, you know, they've got another bought Chris Wood in, in, in January, but that was a very short, you know, as a stopgap, it was a very short term thing. Yes. Whereas I don't think he's, he's got the, the, the prowess, uh, to go and score goals at a higher level, like someone like Callum Wilson might do, but Callum Wilson is, is consistently injured. Every year he's played for Newcastle since he moved in the last three seasons. He's been injured for at least two or three months, if not longer. Last season he, he did his, um, he injured his calf and he was out for, for six or seven. So that can't be sustainable. Callum Wilson's 30 as well. So he's not getting any younger. So a new striker is needed now. But you're right. The, the, the first thing has been the defense because the defense has, has needed a complete overhaul. But the great thing is that that's kind of happened over. To, you know, very swiftly and very, you know, not, not with a massive outlay. They, they've only spent 81 million pounds on all of those players, which is, you know, uh, a lot of Newcastle fans find quite funny that that's only 1 million more than Manchester United spent on Harry Maguire. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, and obviously he's been, you know, heavily criticized over here. And, and yet they've, they've re, they've redone their whole defense. So now, now Newcastle can look further up the pitch. And that, that's where I think the excitement will come. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's good to see the excitement back at the black and white because I think a, a competitive Newcastle is important for the league. You need that that section of the country to be upbeat and represented in the Premier League. Newcastle are already there. Would like to probably see Middlesbrough come back up, maybe Sunderland a few seasons after that, but you definitely need that, that representation in the Northeast. Now, Chris Wood, he's an interesting one. He led the life of Burnley. He left, and Burnley pretty much couldn't recover. Do you see him as a 15-goal-a-season guy, or is he someone who can take the next step and be the, the lead for Newcastle? The proof is there that he scored 10 to 15 goals in pretty much, you know, on average 12 goals a season, I think, is his average before this year, you know, for Burnley in the Premier League, which is which is not to be sort of sniffed at. And you, you've got to look at that and think, well, he, you know, he's, he is proven in the Premier League, but I think Newcastle have bigger ambitions than him. I think he is almost, I think he's 29, 30 as well. So he's not going to be long term. I don't think he'll have enough game time to score that many goals, but if, you know, he only scored twice in the six months he was in, he was in the team last season. But what Eddie Howe was talking about was his role, you know, playing as the big striker up front, holding the ball up, bringing the midfield in, bringing the wingers into play and, Bringing a different dimension to the attack, that was what he was. He was more known. He was known better for that than than he was for goals. So I think that really you're looking at a player who might score. You know, even if he scores five or six from the bench and from the sort of you know the, the odd. If, if Newcastle sign a new striker, 
the likelihood is he'll be third choice. So if he can get five or six goals, but come in and make a difference and, have, and be, just be an option, that's more likely to be his role unless Newcastle fail to get a striker. And then the worst happens with again with Callum Wilson. The thing with, with Callum Wilson is you kind of have to expect that at some stage he will he will get injured for for a, a fairly lengthy amount of time because that's that's been the 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 story of his Newcastle career and really the story of his of his entire career really since he did his uh, he did his knee twice at Bournemouth he injured his knee twice when he was at Bournemouth ironically under Eddie Howe and I think that for Chris Wood. It's interesting to see how he was sold. It, you know, I mentioned Bruno was sort of sold as the, the the project had to be sold to Bruno, whereas really I think Chris Wood had to be sold to Newcastle in a way, and they they bought him as a as a striker because they were struggling to get they they needed somebody in quickly. They were sure he was proven. He was also a, a, the the key man for a relegation rival, which obviously proved the case that they, that Burnley went down. So that that was really the the main reason why. Chris Wood was in, and I think that I don't think he'll get sold this summer, but I, do, I genuinely think he'll play sort of twenty games next season in all competitions. I don't think he'll start many games unless something you know really goes wrong. I think Newcastle will start to to sort of move on from him, and there are a number of those players who who may not have you know what the, 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 what called the the sort of the stopgap player who you know the, who all of these these big takeover clubs have to go through before they get to you know Manchester City didn't just go and buy. Aguero straight away, you know. I know they bought Rubinho, but it didn't really work out. Then they went and bought Gareth Barry and James Milner and Wayne Bridge and you know Craig Bellamy. You know this this sort of British core of player who who took the, you know improved the club, and I think that's where where Chris Wood sort of fits in. But longer term, I, I think I wouldn't be surprised if he's not at the club in eighteen months' time, and specifically in this season, I think he'll be a very you know, a peripheral figure. Fair enough. Now, just one quick question before I throw to Justin. The club has, has new management, new ownership. This is this is well documented. But I have to ask, because all, all the talk has been about um, investment in this team. Has the new ownership talked about that much? Investment in the, in, in the what? Sorry, I, I missed, I didn't quite catch the question. In the in the Newcastle United women's team, have they, have they talked about bringing in new signings for them? Uh, first of all, yes, they have. Uh, Amanda Stavey is very, very and Maida Caduce, who are two of the front runners of the uh, you know, faces of the of the um, of the consortium who bought the club, have been very, very active. And and they, you know, they had the first you know Newcastle United women's game at St James's Park in May. Twenty two thousand people turned up, which is more than any. You know, Newcastle and uh, women's team are in the the not the uh, I think the fourth division of women's football, which is you know tantamount to playing really you know regional teams. You know they don't play, you know they don't travel the country because that's just the sort of lexicon of the that level of women's football at this stage. But there's twenty two thousand people turned up, which was more than any uh, women's super league, which is the the top level um, game that you know that's ever that's ever mm. you know been been played. It was a it was a record until the until the uh, the women's Euros you know until um, the England game uh, the other day against Austria at Old Trafford that 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 sort of blew it out of the water but that you know that record is quite impressive considering you know nobody you know Newcastle United's women's team has not been uh, you know it is not actually te- it hasn't been actually technically part of they've used the name but they've not actually been technically part of the same club they've been under the wing of the Newcastle United 
foundation, which is a charity. So they've had to sort of align them with the club first. And then the hope is that I think Amanda Staveley would love this race between the men and the, and the women to, um, to, to, to see who wins trophies first, um, which is, which is great. And, you know, it would be fantastic if, if Newcastle United's women's side was like Manchester City's women's side or like Chelsea's women's side, like Arsenal's women's side, you know, really going for, for the Champions League in, in, in the women's game. It's going to be interesting, but the, the, the state of the, of the club that she found on the women's side was, you know, that Amanda Stavey found on the women's side was, you know, when she walked in, when they walked in there, it wasn't, a, you know, as I say, it's not even part of the club. And that just shows the negligence that Mike Ashley's had. He didn't have time for, you know, if he didn't have time for the first team, the, 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 the first, the men's team, the, you know, the, the team that's getting in the money and, and, and making him that profit that he was so desperate for. He's not going to have time for anything extra, and that was reflected in the, you know, in the in the academy team. There was never, you know, Newcastle have had a lack of local players. You know, we talk about Alan Shearer, we talk about, you know, Paul Gascoigne. Everybody knows he's a great player for Newcastle. You know, there's, there haven't been many local players coming through in recent years because Mike Ashley hasn't hasn't put the the funding in, and it's, it's it's even worse than that in the women's team. I mean, they have to align the club they have to put the club in the same under the same bracket first and then they can think about it's going to be a driving force and do very well there's an appetite for women's football now in in england generally and that's going to hopefully be reflected by uh, by this by this growth the growth of the team under 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 new under new, under new owners now mm-hmm. indeed look forward to seeing that this episode is brought to you by sports interaction canada's most trusted sports book with Betting options available from every sport you can imagine. From futures and moneyline betting to real-time live betting during games, Sports Interaction offers its customers the most competitive odds in Canada. So head on over to our website and sign up today, as Sports Interaction also has a nice deposit bonus if you click on the link. It's available in every province, from coast to coast. And now back to the show. How do we feel, or how do you personally feel, about... uh, Paul Pogba going back to Juventus this year, especially on his term. I I look at Paul Pogba's career with a whole lot of sadness because when he was at Juventus the first time round, he was the best player in his position in the world, in my opinion. And you know he still has that ability, and he's still only twenty nine. So you know it's not by no means is it over. But the thing for me with um, with Paul Pogba is that he he. You know, he for France he's won the, the the World Cup and he's been a major star for them and so you can't say his career's been a failure by any stretch. But you know, moving to Manchester United and, and wasting his best years at Old Trafford, partly down to him as well. You know, but and, and I'm in no no way saying that he's innocent in this, but the way he's been used and the way that the you know he's sort of become a symptom of, of that club, really just not not getting the best out of themselves and. I know his attitude has been called into question a lot recently. In that sense, going back to Juventus is going to be a very good thing because he, that was where he was, he was happiest. That was where he was at his best. He, you know, they, they were, you know, the thing with Pogba is I struggled to buy this idea that, that Manchester United couldn't fit him into their team properly because Juventus had done it the left of a three in midfield. France have done it as the left of a three in midfield. He never played that for Manchester United, that position. So, He'll go there, and, and you know Max Allegri was was the coach as he left, so he'll go and have a you know 
it'll be a familiar place for him. The team will be built around him. I'm not. I'm. I'm sure. So it was the best option that he had on the table. But really, he shouldn't have gone back to Manchester United in the first place. He he was worth ninety million pounds uh, at the time in 2016. I, I forget how old he was. I think he was 22 at the time. 23. You know, it's it's not. It's not a a great. You know, he was coming into his prime years, and he really should have been able to stretch his legs as he has done for France. Never got that opportunity at Manchester United, and he really gets to that comes to close to a sort of crossroads in his career. You know, that age of thirty, it doesn't mean as much as it used to in terms of players. Still, you know, we mentioned Lewandowski, we mentioned Ronaldo. You know, players who who can go on into their thirties and still be at the top of their game, but. You know he's he's not a young man anymore, and he should have a bunch of league titles and Champions League titles behind him, a bit like someone like Luka Modric, for example, who went to Real Madrid and and really achieved that. Pogba should be on that level in terms of trophies, and he isn't because his career has been badly mismanaged. So this is a real it's a damage limitation, I think, in a set in a way. He's going home to a place where he'll be loved and he'll end his career in a in a great place, but he won't. His career will always be a little bit un, un incomplete because of that six year spell back at Manchester United, who where they they never bought into him the first time round, and you know whether whether he's a problem or not, which I I sort of understand both sides of that argument. It just wasn't a good marriage, and it wasn't a good marriage when he was eighteen, nineteen, let alone twenty four, twenty five. So he needs to go back to Juventus and sort of get the best out of his out of his last few years at the top of his game because that will salvage something. But really, we should be talking about a legend here. We should be talking about a modern-day equivalent of, you know, of, 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 of a Zidane, of an Iniesta, of somebody who, with that sort of level of titles, that, you know, I'm not saying he's, he's as good as Zidane, but I'm saying that, you know, he could have played for Real Madrid and, and won all those trophies like Zidane did, on, like Luka Modric has, as I mentioned. So that's the sad thing for, for me with Pogba. But I think it's a great move for him to go back to you then. Brilliant answer. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was actually wanting to change it up a little bit. I want to ask about the World Cup and what England's expectations are going in. For me, I think England, England's, you know, it's always the same sort of expectation with, uh, with England that, that they will, you know, in England it will always be quarterfinals because that's what England's base has always been certainly in my lifetime, but now there's an expectation and evidence and proof that they can go further, having got to the semis in, in, in Russia and then the final of the, of the Euros last summer as well. Mm-hmm. There's a, the, the, this is the best England team I've ever seen, and I don't, you know, you can talk, everybody knows about the Rudy, Gerard, Lampard, Real Ferdinand era of the golden generation, as they were called, but they, they, they couldn't work as a team. And they, they didn't want to work as a team because they were growing back and being, you know, the, the sort of atmosphere was England, playing for England was a chore, playing for England was a job. And mm-hmm. they didn't like each other because the Chelsea players couldn't mix with the Manchester United players because they were going back to their clubs and, you know, clashing for the title. Whereas now, you know, you've got a lot more and a bigger depth of ability, I think, in this current England squad than, than I've ever seen. And they all get on. They all really like each other. They all really work well together. And that's Gareth Southgate's real success story of this of this you know of his reign as England manager. And so the evidence is there they can go very far. Right now, as you speak to me, there's a lot of anti uh, Southgate sentiment because the, the the team's on a bad run of form, which isn't great going into World Cup. Fitness obviously is an issue. England have always had issues with 
you know, players getting injured before World Cups, particularly Wayne Rooney and, and David Beckham in the past. So, you know, the, the, it, there's a lot that depends on there. There's France and Brazil are going to be interesting to watch. Argentina, I think, are the team really to watch because, you know, Messi's finally really settled into his, to his role. You know, at the age of 35, he finally looks, you know, right at home in Argentina in a, in a system that works for him. Scaloni, Lionel Scaloni's got a really good thing going there. He's got a much more balanced team than he's ever, than he's ever had before. Then you've got Spain and you've got Germany coming through as well. So there's a lot of quality there. I think that if England gets semi-finals, I think that would be, in reality, a positive, but it probably wouldn't. I think because the progression has been semi-finals, final, the next step is to win something. And um, the FA, the, the, the Football Association here, actually earmarked the 2022 World Cup as the, the tournament that they were planning to win when they set out their big sort of decade-long plan to improve the state of English football. So I think... And, and England has always struggled with expectation around World Cups naturally. So for me, I think a semi-final would be the minimum that I would expect. And class is a good... A good a good tournament, but I think everybody will be expecting expecting them to win it because that because otherwise that that doesn't show progress. Do you think that a World Cup in November hurts the squad or helps the squad? I think it helps. First of all, I think it hurts the World Cup. I'm sitting here in in English summer in June, thinking on, on July, thinking this is it should be the World Cup now. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I I think I've lost out on that <laughs> personally. I think a lot of spectators have, um, but but for England as a team, they'll have the, they'll have had the long break and they'll be the it could it could help because they they won't be regenerating the, their fitness levels before the, after two or three weeks of the end of the season where they're already tired anyway coming off the back of a long season. It yeah. should be at their peak level because the season obviously starts a bit earlier in August. And then breaks just at the start of November, so they should be at peak condition. But that's the same for all the European teams. It's the same for France. It's the same for well, and probably even you know Brazil and Argentina, given that most of their their you know key players play in Europe as well. So I think if it helps England, it helps everybody else. But uh, but it, I think it definitely it definitely in that sense could be seen as a positive. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see how the the dynamic plays out there and different conditions, different timing. It'll just be, it will potentially level the playing field a little bit in Qatar, but we'll we'll have to see. Now, Harry, I do have to ask, what are your thoughts on a team? You talked about Newcastle and the Champions League ambitions. They actually ended a team's Champions League ambitions last season when they beat Arsenal quite comprehensively at St. James's Park. What is your outlook on the red and white for next season and beyond? Um, I, I'm always sort of very, very interested. I don't really know what to say about Arsenal anymore because they're such a, their their issues and and have been the same since the end of well even they've been the same for fifteen twenty years nearly twenty years now, just shy of after they when they when they won the the league without losing a game in two thousand and four, they've had this very soft centre and they don't have very you know they they don't have very many players who stand up and. Really, sort of take the you know like like Chelsea always did, Manchester United always did, and like Liverpool do now. There's a sort of like real core of sort of winning mentality and belief and leadership that I think Arsenal have always lacked. And having said that, I think Mike Arthur did a better job last season 
than anyone think you know thought he would. And I think that that sort of maybe changed the perception of of Arsenal. And now the fact that they lost out on the Champions League became it was viewed as a failure. But if they'd finished, if everybody had said, you know, lots of people were saying they'd finished eighth and ninth at the start of, at the start of last season, particularly after they lost at Brentford on the opening day, and they showed that lack of that lack of fight against a physical team like Brentford did, you know, that that night in at the start of last season. So that, you know, they, they, they're they really battling those issues and that, I think, will always stop them being ultra-successful in the, they were, the, in the days when they had Vieira and Henri and, you know, Saul Campbell. And, you know, that they, when they had that in abundance under, under Arsene Wenger, they've never really replaced that and I think that really costs them. Having said that, though, you know, Gabriel Jesus is a really, really good signing. He's an excellent player. I think he's incredibly underrated because he hasn't played regularly for Man City, which is not a, a mean feat, really. I mean, you know, some great players don't. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Guardiola has changed the system and changed the, the ideology um, of not playing with a striker at City over the last couple of years. And really, he, he was sort of let down by the fact that he couldn't keep up with Sergio Aguero's goal-scoring record, which, again, not many players in, in the history of English football have ever done. So, you know, uh, so that's not, something that you can really hold against Gabriel Jesus. Bukayo Saka is a wonderful player. Fabio Vieira is a good signing. Rafinha, if they can get him in. Uh, Lisandro Martinez, they're making some really good moves. And and one thing I will say for Michael Arteta is really he has he has streamlined everything. He has sort of seen these issues and tried his best to improve on them, I think, uh, I, I guess. And it's going to take time. And, you know, it's a saying that Arsenal fans have about trust the process and some fans will and some fans won't. And Arsenal fans have, for me, been the most volatile fan base in English football for quite a while. Because of that reason, they, they never seem to be able to agree on anything like that. But, you know, if, if Arsenal can finish fifth again, that would be a good season, I think. Again, everybody got a bit carried away last season with the fact that they, were, that they should have got fourth because they should have beaten Brighton at home and they should have beaten, probably if, they, if they'd managed to beat Newcastle away from home, they, you know, they were a couple of results away, but... That, that means that they've won a couple of games that they probably shouldn't have won across the season as well, like Chelsea away, for example. So they're improving as a club. I don't think that they are a top-four side yet. But Mikel Arteta's definitely got them on the right track, and if Arsenal fans are patient enough, maybe they'll break through. I think they're a long way off being where they used to be. I think they don't have the, the money. I think Chelsea and, and, and Liverpool, and to be honest, I don't think... I think you'll probably see with Newcastle a lot of money, you know, all the money in the world is probably not going to close that gap anytime soon. Winning the Premier League is looking very difficult for teams like Chelsea and Manchester United and, um, and Tottenham, who, who were, you know, and Arsenal, who were in that sort of group of teams chasing them, let alone, you know, someone like Newcastle. And I don't think, I think, I just think the gap's too big for Arsenal as well. So, top four, if they can get top four this season, that would be a very good season. But I don't think they should be too harshly judged on the fact that they that they failed to get to the top four last season because really nobody really honestly expected it to happen. They were in the bottom three in September. So, you know, the, so Mikel Arteta has done a good job and I think people need to remember that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. You've, you've given me some optimism for the next season, so appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> Positive vibes only around here. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, where can our fans find you on all your social medias? Everything I do is pretty much on Twitter at Harry DeCosimo. I'm on LinkedIn. If you find my name, you spell it correctly, as, and um, which is basically the, the the challenge. 
once you've done that, then you'll catch me. If you if you go on Twitter, you'll get everything from me, really. And uh, I, I basically mainly use Twitter for all professional stuff. All right. I just gave you a quick little follow. Thank you. Anyone else want to chime in real quick before we say goodbye? No, man. It's great talking to you, Harry. Thank you very much for having me, guys. It's been uh, it's been great fun, um, and I really appreciate you uh, you asking me on. Anytime. Thank you for your time. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcast's experience. Where no sport is left behind.